Good morning, everybody. That's called a contrast. It is well with my soul. And then the dollar bill is a friend of mine. Didn't feel quite like that in my head. But that's what you call a contrast. In fact, a sharp contrast. Uh, we are here today wrapping up the series called The Sweet Life. And we're really glad that you're here uh, to worship with us. Uh, like John mentioned, some of you may be here for, for baptism. And we're excited to be a part of the celebration for those who decide to follow Jesus and take that step of obedience by getting baptized. And uh, we invite you, if you have nowhere to go uh, after service, before baptism starts a little after one, uh, people are going to be taking their lunch and we're going to be providing some, uh, some water, some chips and some cookies uh, just for an opportunity for us to, to gather and spend some time together. So I encourage you to do that. You can head to Smith Park. Like John mentioned, there's directions right on the table on the right side of the resource table as, as you guys leave. Uh, over the last few weeks, we've been looking at the sweet life and how do you experience uh, the best life possible and not just the best life considering what we want out of life or how we think it should go. But actually, how is the best life given to us from God himself, uh, the creator of the universe, the creator of us? And what you find in life is that experiencing the sweet life and experience blessing is not just like a matching game where you hope you can kind of turn over the same picture and it and it comes together for you. It's not a guessing game. It's not something where uh, we roll the dice and hope by chance uh, we can experience good. Uh, when you actually decide to follow Jesus and he becomes the boss of your life and you decide to give your life over to him, you actually decide that his ways and his reality are really the gauge from how life will be good or not. So as we live life according to him, and as we take time to actually know what he says and get to know with, get to know him better and to walk with him and to read the scriptures, what we're doing is we're saying, God, out of all the options that I could live and out of all the realities that I could base my life on, I'm going to decide that your way uh, is the best way. In fact, your way is the way that I'm going to choose over everything else. And so over the last few weeks, we've been looking at what are the different pursuits that we have to actually deal with in order to experience that sweet life so we can actually stay on the right path that God wants uh, for us. And here's kind of an overarching principle. If you've missed any of the series, uh, this kind of idea will kind of help catch you up. What you put your trust in life, so where you put your trust in life, determines how sweet it is. That's really how, how life works. Depending what you trust in, what you focus on, what you give your attention to, that's going to determine how sweet your life is. And that's actually something that's measured. It's something that happens in our choices, not just our ideas. It doesn't just happen in our feelings. It happens when we decide each day uh, what we're going to spend our energy doing, what we're going to spend our resources on. And so our goal is to look at if you actually decide to put your trust in Jesus Christ, you will have the sweetest life possible. It doesn't mean that it's always going to be fun necessarily. It doesn't mean that it's always going to come together exactly like you hope. There's a sweetness and a contentment that you can experience when you follow Jesus that you cannot experience any other way and in any other place. So that's what we've been talking about. But as you might have imagined by the song, we can't talk about the sweet life without talking about the topic of money. Because money is everywhere. Money gets our attention. We spend so much time, if you're like me, we look at our bank accounts, we're looking at budgets, we're dealing with our spending, we're dealing with our debt, we're dealing with all the things that related to money can really consume us. And there's actually some things that pull at us where over the course of time we have to decide, will we put our trust in money? 
in materials, in our ability to make money and still make more money and still make more money? Are we going to put our trust in there? Because our view of money, again, like anything else, is going to determine the kind of life that we have. And so we're going to be talking about money this morning. And if you're new to church, this might be what you expect, because sometimes people picture coming to church and they're going to be talking about money. The reason church talks about money is that the Bible actually talks about money again and again and again and again, because there's a link to our view of money and how important it is to us, to our actual heart. What's important to us in our heart related to money is actually going to guide our life. It's going to determine the paths that we go. And so today we want to just kind of look at some perspective that can help all of us no matter where uh, we are. I want to start off by kind of laying the, the playing field that, that we all are we all are kind of on. And that's the idea that, at least for me and I'm sure for you, there's a kind of a part of us which thinks we, we're not getting too crazy about money. I, I wouldn't think I'm like crazy about money and I don't think about it too much. But we tend to think usually in extremes, like our goal isn't just to get rich as fast as possible for the most part. It could be, but for most of us, we just even keel. We don't want to go too extreme towards money. We don't want to Love it too much, but at the same time, we want to make sure we keep the pulse so we can kind of see where, where things are at. But anytime we talk about money and materialism, there's a part in us where we kind of divide ourselves from other people who we would say are extreme. These are the people that like, OK, I don't have to think about money or worry about money or this issue of it consuming me because I'm not like this type of person. So I began to think, how would you know if somebody is really, really serious about money? How would you know? If it's really important to them. And the thought came to me, you know, the way you could really know is would people ever get a tattoo of money on them? Would they? And I'm going to answer the question. They actually would, because as I asked that question and I Googled it, I entered into a world of tattoo money. Okay, and here here are some images And from what I can tell, I don't think you can get these out of like a cereal box, like a free prize and just like sponge it. I mean, I think these are real. And you got a little hand, you know, hundred dollar bills. Then you got the guy that he's fully committed with a shirt off, but he could hide it and you wouldn't know. OK, but once he takes his shirt off, whoa, he's he's serious. OK, and then the guy at the side, he's got kind of the, the arm, the sleeve of of the actual bill there. So I tend to think like, okay, I can worry about money, but I don't have any tax. And if you have, listen, this is a disclaimer. If you have a tattoo of money on you right now, you are welcome here. Because <laughs> all of a sudden you're kind of feeling like, is everyone looking at me? We have no idea. Okay. So you are welcome here. But for some of these people, it could be, this is what I'm supposed to pursue. So every time you look in the mirror, you're reminded money. That's what I'm supposed to pursue. Or... To give them the benefit of the doubt, maybe it's the warning, it's not all about the money. So when I look at my arm and I see the bill, it's like, oh, it's not about the money. It's not, it's not about that. It's not, it's not about the money. So maybe it's just a warning, give them a benefit of the doubt. But this is how we usually view, like, okay, let's talk about money, let's talk about the pursuit of it, but we're not those people. We're not extreme. But for all of us, there's some things that we have to deal with related to experiencing the good life related to money and materialism. And that's what we're calling today the money mirage. A mirage is something lucerory 
without substance or reality. Have you ever seen a, a mirage? If you've been driving and you've been kind of in a desert type place, you can look out the window and you can see that it, there looks like there's water out there. In fact, there's a picture here. And there's a sense in which there's water and you're just going to go get it. And the closer you get, you realize that it's, it's not there. That's what a mirage is. It's, it's without substance. It's not real. It doesn't match reality. It looks real, but, but it's not. And here's the money mirage that many of us have. And I know that I think this in different times. And I know other people think this at different times. And, and here it is, the money mirage. More money equals or means a better an easier life. If I just had more money, my life would be better and my life would be easier. But what you find is that is actually not necessarily the case, because if we were to look at all the people with the most wealth in the world, they're not necessarily the people that have the sweetest life. In fact, there's a lot of misery. There's a lot of things that don't come together for the most wealthiest of all people. So there's something to this which we have to actually wrestle with, which is that kind of little piece inside of us where we get to the point where we say, but if I just had a little bit more, things would come together. If I just had a little bit in this month where all these things are coming down on me, all these unexpected bills, it would all kind of come together and my problems would be solved. But according to the scripture, there's no part in which more money is the gauge of success and more money is the gauge of the good life or the sweet life. In fact, the scriptures take a stance on we actually have to be really careful about money and our, our pursuit of it. And so I want to shift gears and share kind of some ideas from the Bible which help put money in its rightful place. And the scriptures kind of paint this picture when you read the wisdom literature in Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. This is the books of the Bible in the middle of the scriptures where they kind of give like how does life work? And so they talk a lot about money. They talk a lot about materialism. They talk about the pursuit of being rich. And this is just a kind of an overall truth that these wisdom literatures kind of say in the scriptures. In Ecclesiastes 5.10, it summarizes it like this. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. The vanity there is, is really translated. It's meaningless. The idea is the more money you have, actually the less satisfied you can become and the more income you get, you just keep wanting more. So it's just like you're spinning your wheels and you're not actually able to make progress. But there's a part of us, if we're honest with ourselves, that we think there is a good life and God may be kind of involved in that. There's this kind of secret compartment, the secret desire. And sometimes we don't even realize it. This is the idea of I just need a little bit more to take the pressure off. I need a little bit more things to come together so life will be easier. What the scripture is saying is that there is no magic key. And money especially does not unlock the door to the good life. So there actually has to be, there has to be more. The picture I had in my head is when my kids were younger, about one or two, usually toddlers, they, they love to pick up as many toys as they possibly can at the same time. But they have little hands. And what happens is they get one toy in one hand and they get another toy and they walk around with them. And all of a sudden on the ground, they see another toy that they really want. If you've ever seen this picture, it's it's very interesting. So what will happen is a, a young child will have these two things and they see that other thing and they bend down to go get that toy that they don't have. But they only have two hands. 
Have you ever seen what happens? They drop the one toy in one hand, pick up the other one that they want, and then pick it up. And what does they do? They, they look down. But wait, I want that toy too. And do you know what they do? They reach down, they drop one toy in their hand, they pick the other one up. And if you're really into comedy, you could just let this keep going and going and going. But there's this disconnect where they don't see that they actually are not at a place where they can grab more than the two toys they have in their hands because their their hands are small. They can't handle it. But that's how it is with money for us. That's what the scripture is saying. It's It's a pursuit that it actually is a dead end. It doesn't get you where you want. But we get to this point where we think, well, I I have this and I just want more. And as we're getting out more, we realize that we still don't have what we want. And as we get more, we realize we still don't have what we want. So this space of hope that we want fulfilled, that we put money in to fill, it actually doesn't fit. It doesn't work. That's what the writer is saying. It's meaningless. It's a pursuit in which you're not making progress. You're just going in circles. And that's what happens uh, with money. And the warning here in Ecclesiastes, he who loves money, the idea of of loving money like it would be in any other relationship is you you give your attention to, you focus on, you give it your time, you give it your energy. And we can do that with money. We can do that in the time that we spend working to make more money and adding jobs to make more money or side jobs to make more money. Partnering with people so they can make us more money. All this stuff can culminate in this love of money. But what you find as you walk with God for a while is if you love money, you're entering an empty relationship. And even without a relationship with God, you kind of know that money is actually not the greatest relationship you can have. Think about this money ever love anyone back. I asked that myself. I thought, does money ever love you back? And I thought, well, you could buy stuff with money and it sure could feel good. For a while, like it could make you feel like you're loved. If you got this new car, you could feel the love when you're driving it. But then the car gets dinged, it gets old, and the love fades. But money itself doesn't love you back. It's an object. It's not a person. But what tends to happen is we have this relationship with money where we focus and give our attention and love it, but it never loves us back. Because you can't love money. You can't be in a relationship with money. It's one-sided. It's empty. And so I want to shift gears and talk about how this this mirage of more money works itself out. And there's a there's a a passage in Scripture, which is written by the Apostle Paul, who started uh, churches in the early church in in the New Testament. He wrote about two thirds of the New Testament. He spent so much time uh, planting churches, starting churches and growing this movement of Christianity. And he wrote some letters to this protege of his called Timothy, and he wanted him to really learn what it means to follow God, what it means to help others learn how to follow God as well. And he spent some time in first Timothy instructing him on this area of money, because he realized like as somebody who's new and upcoming in the faith and trying to lead other people, you have to have this, the right gauge of of money. You have to know how to help people navigate with it and move past it and not love it. And so he gave him some insight that I want to kind of talk about, which, which is helpful. And it's this idea of more money, what, what it does and, and what it doesn't do. So more money, according to the Apostle Paul in the scriptures, more money is of far less value than spiritual increase. And what Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6, 6 is this, but godliness with contentment 
is great gain. In this chapter, Paul is writing to Timothy saying that there's people that are actually wanting to fake a relationship with God. They're actually wanting to appear spiritual and appear like they're religious so that they could actually gain status and prestige and power with really the goal of becoming more wealthy. They were using Christianity and a relationship with God as the means to get them what they really wanted. They wanted status. They wanted power. They wanted money. And so Paul gives this warning before this in in chapter 6. He's saying, watch out for these people who use godliness as a fake means to, to get what they want. Speaking again against this, about this mirage, they, they appear like they care about what God cares about, but really they just care about themselves. And so he ends it with this statement. As you watch out for these people, the truth is godliness with contentment is great gain. This idea of godliness is that there is no other pursuit outside of pursuing God that can actually fulfill your life. And he's laying it on the line here. It's just really black and white. Godliness is deciding that your life exists to get to know God more, to do what he says, and help other people come to know him as well. You care what he cares about, you love what he loves, you despise what he despises, and you spend your life really trying to line up your life with his priorities. And it comes in our choices, it comes in our behavior, it comes in our attitude. And godliness, if you choose this, and if you choose to follow Christ, it's not a means to an end. It is the end. It is the goal. It is the pursuit. And so Paul is saying godliness with contentment. When you realize that God is all you need. And there's nothing else that you needed to fill in margin. When you realize God is all you need. And you're content with that. You have great gain. You have you have real blessing. You have lasting blessing. You don't have to spend your time spinning your wheels thinking about another pursuit like like money or power or prestige. And he goes on. More money is also short sighted without the right plan and perspective. You find that in verses seven and eight. And he says this. The reason you can have godliness with contentment is for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content and you see this idea of contentment again and there's a sense in which we actually do need money to buy the things that we need food clothing daily necessities we actually have to have money that's why work is also valuable in the scriptures you actually work in a way that pleases god and that can give you money which can provide for those that you're connected with whether it's your family or those around you This idea of godliness with contentment brings great gain. But at the end of our life, we cannot take our money with us. We cannot take the things that are really important with us. All we will take is ourselves, our soul. Everything else is left on this earth. And so in terms of pursuit, he's saying godliness extends from this life into the next life, into eternity. For those who follow Christ, they will enter eternity with Jesus. And they will be with God forever. But the pursuit of money, it ends here and now in this life. There's a stop. So he's comparing and contrasting. We're going to leave this world with nothing to show for our money. Now, think about that. Is there anything that you really, 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 really like that you own? Or are there certain bank accounts that you'd be like, man, 
I know you can't take anything with you, but maybe just a little bit. We don't think in terms of that. We know when we die, it's, it's over. But in life, we forget that. And sometimes our focus and our attention, again, what we love and what we trust determines the sweetness. And we can spend so much time loving things which actually do not last. For some of you, I, I've shared this before. I grew up in a military family and we didn't have a lot of money growing up. And I wouldn't get a lot of new things. And I kind of developed a problem over time where when I would get new things, I loved the newness of the thing more than I actually liked it itself. And so one day I got this brand new pair of shoes, like navy blue Airwalks. You guys remember Airwalks? They came with a sticker back in the day. They were like the coolest shoes ever. Well, I liked the shoes so much that I actually never wanted to wear them. And I just kept them on a shoe rack in my closet. I'm feeling like I'm opening myself up here, okay? Just getting a little vulnerable. And in college, I got a new pair of, like a packet of socks, and I loved the new socks, and I actually didn't want to get them unnew, so I never opened the packet of socks. And I started noticing a pattern. I had new shirts, and I really liked the new shirts. And I'd look at these shirts in the closet that still had the tag in them, and I never wore the shirts. And I started realizing that, like, I had a problem. They could make a reality show out of this, I don't know what it'd be called, but problem guy, but come up with something better than that. But uh, one day, kind of when it hit me was I went to kind of finally pull out the shoes and somebody close in my life said, well, those are great shoes, but those are like out of style now by like three years. And I'd had them about four years and I never wore them. And I share this because like it was a simple thing, but in my perspective, I really liked that stuff. I liked it so much that I actually wasn't able to actually use it. And I ended up just giving the stuff away. There was no joy in that. But it's that perspective that like stuff gets really important to us. And for some of you, you may not have the problem that I have. Did have, I'll say I'm like, I'm kind of in rehab, Okay try to wear stuff in the first week that I get it, okay? But you may have a different issue, just like where you really care when you have something and it gets messed up, it really bothers you. Or when your bank account gets underneath a certain level, you get really concerned. When unexpected bills or expenses come, it can overwhelm you. We each have different things that kind of show the attention and the love that we can sometimes give to money. So Paul is saying, we have to remember that there is nothing that we make on this earth that's in our bank account that we will ever take with us. That's why godliness trumps materialism. This is just a reminder for, for all of us. And Paul goes on, he says, more money has some dangerous pathways. And this is where he gets a little bit more specific on what we have to watch out for related to this money mirage. This is verse 9 and 10. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, there it is again, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves, themselves with many pains. I want to stop right there. There's a few words here. You have this desire to be rich. You fall into temptation, into a snare. The idea of a snare is you fall into a trap. 
And it's a trap that you can't easily get out of. It has caught you and you are stuck. And the reason you're stuck, Paul explains, is that because of desires and it's they're senseless and they're harmful. And what he's saying is, is if you have this desire to be rich and to fill your life with more and more stuff and more and more money, and you base kind of the reality of your life and how well you're doing and your well-being on that, your, your life becomes senseless. And the idea of senseless is you make more, but it's not enough. And the more money you have, it actually feels like you have less. And the more things you get, it feels like it's not enough. And I've seen this in my own life with people that I've related to. There's a sense in which sometimes you just get into this trap where it's never enough. And the more you get and the more you try to kind of build security without God, you realize the more fragile you are. And fear is raised because you can't get enough. The unknown overwhelms you because you're not sure what you're going to do. So Paul's talking about the security. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. That idea of harmful desires, once you're senseless and you're not seeing things for how they really are, that you actually may have more than you ever have had, you can actually run over people, manipulate people, power up over people to actually get you what you want. If people are a means to helping you make more money and feel more secure, then you start treating people like objects. And so it's not just senseless, but it's harmful. You can destroy those around you by the pursuit of money. And he's not writing to just this crazy elitist group. He's writing to this person that he's built into that's going to be building into other people's. And he's saying this is crucial to the sweet life. This idea of don't, don't, be, don't be deceived. These snares are everywhere. These snares are are everywhere. And so you have this, this senseless, this harmful, and it plunges people into ruin and destruction. This idea of the plunge is you're just sinking. And the more money becomes what you love, the more you sink into its pit. And the more you sink into its pit, the less you can get out. And you can be overwhelmed. It can take you out. So this idea of Paul saying you have to keep this desire for money and for security that comes from it on a leash like you would this this wild dog you can't just let it run free you have to keep it right here so you can keep watch over it you have to be careful and that that's what what paul's saying and he goes on more money also can lead to an inflated view of myself and that's a trap that we can all fall into the more things we have the more things we own the more money we make the more titles we have we can think that we are better than other people there's this pull where we can compare ourselves to others. I'm better off than they are. Or the opposite side is they have more than me and I want what they have. And this can lead to all sorts of pursuits as well that can really hurt us. But Paul says this, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. Haughty is arrogant. Okay. And it says, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. So don't, don't be arrogant thinking that what you have gives you a means to treat people like they're less than you. He's saying you have to look at people different. These are people that are made in the image of God. They have value despite their bank account. You have value despite your bank account. So this command, do not be, do not be arrogant. And then he kind of shifts gears and he says, so more money 
is a mirage. It's not going to give you what you what you want. It can lead to pride. It can lead to emptiness. It can lead to snares. It can lead to destruction of relationships. And then he turns the corner and he says, but if you actually put your hope in God, this is what can happen with the money that you make. So Paul doesn't just end it with like, so the goal is don't make any money and just live off of the fields that I've created. It's actually not that simple. We still are to work and money can be still used for good. But he uses all this to preface. Here's all the warnings. Here's all the things you have to be look out to look out for. And then, then he says this. Setting our hope in God is the key to true fulfillment. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. And then he shifts gears. But on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Okay, so if you go back really quick. So there's a contrast again. If I'm focusing on more money and I get it, I've now put trust in myself and my own security. I'm self-sufficient. I'm independent. I don't need God. But what Paul has written all before that is if we get to that point, life's going to crumble for us. So we're not supposed to set our hope on riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. The reason we can set our hope on God and focus on him is we realize that he is the one that will take care of us. He is the one that loves us. Where money doesn't love us, God loves us. When money can't come through and provide us security, he gives us security. He provides. And then he goes on. Again, he's talking to to the rich, people that, that are taken care of. They are to do good, to be rich in good works. So now he's reclassifying what rich is. Those people who are rich in this present age... Now, anytime you hear the word rich, in America, we, we don't exactly know how to gauge that. Like, are we rich? Are we not? And you may be richer than you've ever been. But compared to the rest of the world, most Americans are rich. If you own a car, you're rich. If you have a place to live, you, you're rich. If you eat three meals a day, you're rich. If you get a pumpkin spice latte at Starbucks, I went there, uh-oh, you're rich. Unless you had a free coffee, but if you have a free coffee, it means you bought a lot of coffee to get the free coffee. You're rich, right? We're rich. So we have to shift. We are rich, but we're supposed to be rich, not because of our money, but we are supposed to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Back to the toddler idea, you know, we have two hands, we have two things, but we want three things. We want four things. What Paul's saying here is you actually, now you have two things in your hand. You can actually give something to somebody else. And you know what God does? He'll give you more. And as you give, God gives you more. And as you give, God gives you more. This is the paradox. The more generous you are, And the more willing you are to actually be rich in good works, to love people, to extend kindness to them, not just in idea or in words, but actually in helping other people. Extending your money to advance the kingdom of God. God will take care of you more than if you just try to hoard that yourself. That's what Paul's saying. 
We have an opportunity to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. That idea of ready to share is at any moment, there's an opportunity that you can take to extend generosity to somebody else. And that key word is ready. You're ready. How are you ready for something? Well, you've anticipated. You've looked at needs. You've looked at where people are at and you are ready to help. That's what it means to be rich in good works. We're seeing things differently. We're not just caught in our own world. What we need, what we hope we have, what we hope we can get, but we look at others. What, what do other people need? How can I be generous and ready to share? This doesn't actually classify many people. This is why we need the Lord's help. We can't be generous people without God's help. We don't have this innately in us. And that's why when we choose to do life God's way and walk on the sweet life that he said, this begins to grow. And we can actually become generous people. We can extend what he's given to us to others and to be a blessing. And that's what it means to be generous. We are a blessing to those around us. Proverbs 11.25 says this, Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. The American mentality is, bless me, refresh me. I may help you if you help me. I may be kind to you if you're kind to me. I may refresh you if you've refreshed me. And a Christian is supposed to be the one that initiates. It's our role to take the first step. Of generosity. It's our role to take the first step to refresh. And they may do it or they may not. But you know who will? God will. He will refresh us. He will give back to us. And so we don't have to place our hope in the things that we can see. Because we know that God our Father will take care of us as we are the people that he's told us to be. So Proverbs 11.25 it's a great verse to memorize, just as a truth, as you're battling, as you're thinking this through, this idea of, like, God, help me to take the initiative to be the kind of person that blesses others. Help me to take the step first. And then see how, how God comes through. I want to just encourage you to take some next steps uh, this morning. But before I do that, I kind of want to recap where we've been uh, over the course of the last few weeks, just to summarize the sweet life. And so I, I've summarized this. Uh, trusting God brings about the sweet life as we choose humility and defer to others. We talked about that in week one. Uh, second, uh, we pursue peace in the face of conflict. And then three, we handle our responsibilities with diligence and gratitude. And then today what we've been talking about is we hope in God and, and we're generous people. If you've missed any of the messages, I encourage you, you can listen online at churchinthevalley.com. But this really is life-giving. As we decide that we don't have to kind of choose our own path and realize that we hope everything will work out, we have a God who will lead us. And he's not out to get us and he's not going to take advantage of us. He will lead us to the good life. It will come as we trust in him. So I encourage you to think of these things. And then the, the, there's some next steps that you can take. If you take out your connection card and finish filling that out, uh, that John had you start filling out, on the back side, there's some next steps. Uh, you may want to memorize 1 Timothy 6.17. That's written on there. 
You may want to memorize Proverbs 11:25, which I shared towards the end. Uh, sometimes for me, you just you memorize a scripture, and it's a reminder in the middle of the pursuit and the pull of things that aren't right for us. God's way is better, and we need His truth to remind us of that. And then the second is I encourage you to come next week for the launch of a new series we're starting called Hometowns. And we're going to be talking about uh, the kind of community that God wants to build uh, through his church and how that actually uh, becomes really what the world needs. And so I hope you can come. I encourage you to just think of some people who maybe feel disconnected and maybe are looking for a church. Uh, Next week, we're going to start talking about this for uh, the next few weeks. So let's pray and then I hope to see you guys at baptism. God, thank you for the reminder that for those who follow you, uh, we are rich in every way because of what you've given to us. Not just uh, in the materials or money that you've provided so generously, but but also in just the life that you've given us. Uh, The truth of scripture that that gives us direction. Uh, Your Holy Spirit, which gives us us power. And through Jesus Christ, who's given us forgiveness. And we are people that we so desperately feel like we're lacking. But as we look to you and we rely on you, we actually have what we need. So God, help us to be people who are rich in good works and who take the first step to to be generous and willing to share and to refresh others. And just help us to keep in mind if there's any anybody around us that we can actually take the first step to 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 bless and, and to love. So help us to see that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.